Well, we're going to turn to our Bibles just now, uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, for what uh, is to be our final study uh, in this uh, book of revitalization. So let's read from uh, Numbers, uh, sorry, Nehemiah ch- uh, chapter 13 and at verse 15. Nehemiah 13 and 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them um, on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil, this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin." Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites." Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the firstfruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. I think the 
obvious question to be asked as we come to this final part of uh, the book of, of Nehemiah is ultimately was this a failed project? Did, did he actually um, attain and achieve his objectives or um, was it all for nothing? I mean all the dreams that he had back in Babylon when first of all he heard about the state of, of, of Judah and Jerusalem and uh, the vision that he had to do something. Uh, all that hard work uh, in the face of all the opposition when during the night and everything they were working away continuously. Uh, was all of that going to achieve what he had desired in the first place uh, or not? I suppose the ultimate measurement of whether something is successful or a failure in, in these terms is actually the amount of obedience that there is to the Word of God. I think that is the measure. I mean, we've all noticed time and time again how, how frequently Nehemiah has brought them back to the Bible, how the Bible has been read and it's in response to what they learn and understand of the Bible that they respond or they don't respond. And that principle is something that for us this morning always will be the case as well. That has to be the measure of whether something is successful in spiritual terms. It's not a measure of of numbers. It's not a measure of how creative we are. It's not a measure of a sense of energy or vibrancy. Um, it's a measure at the end of the day uh, of, of obedience. Let's just remind ourselves of, of what the Lord Jesus said on, on this subject of obedience. I've got a couple of quotations. He said that if you know these things, as he taught them, you, you will be blessed. You will be happy if, if you do them. He said, it's not the person who hears my word, but it's the person who hears my word and does it who's like the person who builds his life on the rock. And doesn't matter if the storms come, that house will stand fast. He said, if you love me, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That is the test of love for Christ. He then said to some people, why do you call me Lord? And yet you do not do the things that I say. And the commands, of course, of Christ are not something that are arduous. He said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The, the commands of God are often painted uh, by society as being restrictive and being harsh and being narrow and being a burden for people to live their lives by. But the Lord Jesus says the complete opposite. He said, you take my yoke upon you, you'll find that that yoke is easy and my burden is light. I quoted in prayer early what the, the psalmist said about the words of God. He said, you know, they're sweet like honey. And they're more precious than, than fine gold. And, and they are my joy and they are my delight. And so, I guess if there is any clear and, and obvious deviation from the Bible, 
as far as our own lives, as far as our church life, our personal life is concerned, that would constitute disobedience to Christ's teaching. And maybe before the Lord, it's good for us all just to reflect on that and to face up to that and to address that because that is the measure of of success. There were two issues you would have noticed in this passage here that Nehemiah identifies in particular as, as areas of disobedience uh, at that time. Of course, he's come back, as we learned last week, from Babylon after being away, found that everything has started to slip again. And uh, here are two things in particular that he identifies. Uh, from verse 15 down to 21, it's the issue of the profaning of the, of the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was to be kept holy. That, that, that's what it says in verse 22. And that's not new for them. That's not brand new news out of left field. They knew that. I mean, hadn't they a way back at the end of chapter 10, on the day that they made that solemn covenant, you remember? They actually had said, we will not buy from these people on the Sabbath day. We will keep the Sabbath holy. And they had said that, and they had signed their name to it, and it had been a big formal occasion. And, uh, and now, you know, look at what is happening. In a relatively short period of time, it's, it's, it's showtime on the, on the Sabbath in, in Jerusalem. The, the busyness of the marketplace, the hustle and bustle of the traders, the economy is booming, there's so much energy going on, color, life, noise... Jerusalem's not a ghost town any longer, packed with people, all busy on the Sabbath day, buying and selling the whole show. No focus, no emphasis on the enjoyment of God or the worship of God, which is, of course, the spiritual message of what the Sabbath day symbolizes. The Sabbath is not all about rigidity, I mean, we know that from the life of Christ because that was the way that the Pharisees interpreted it at that time. They wouldn't even allow the Lord to heal a person on the Sabbath day. And the Lord had to show them and teach them that, you know, uh, that the Sabbath day was, was made for man. It wasn't that man was made for the Sabbath. The whole point of the Sabbath day was to take you back to what happened on creation and that principle that was established that after the creation of the entire universe by God, on the seventh day he rested and he said it was very good as he looked at it. He enjoyed that. He made that pronouncement that this is good and he rested in that sense. Now, the key passage to help us really get the insight into it in our New Testaments is Hebrews chapter 4 which talks about the fact that there still remains a Sabbath for the people of God. Now, what is that Sabbath that still remains? It's not, it's not casting us to the past. It's taking us to the future. What is the true meaning of the Sabbath? Well, there are two things that Hebrews 4 talks about. It talks about, first of all, resting from our own works which means that rather than feeling that we have to continually strive to achieve some sort of acceptance by God, as many religious people have done, 
always performing spiritual religious duties to try and earn favor. No, no. We have to rest from that. We have to stop doing that. And the second half of it is this. We are to rest in Christ. So we look at Christ and his finished work, and we see what God said at creation. We look at what Christ has done, and we say, well, that's good. That is very good. I I can enjoy that in this sense, that when God looked on Christ, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We look at Christ upon the cross. Yes, there was an awful side to that. Of course there was. But, you know, this is the work of salvation. And he finished that. It's completed. Totally done. It is finished, he said. And I can rest myself on that. I can, I can finish with all my striving and with relief. I can come to Christ knowing that He has done everything and I rest in enjoyment and in peace on Christ's finished work. That's the meaning of the Sabbath. You know, they had desecrated that. They they didn't really see the point of it all. They, They hadn't understood what it all signified. That is the point. That's the application for us uh, today as far as that is concerned. And so, you know, are we fulfilling the true meaning of the Sabbath as far as this sense, this double sense of, of rest is concerned? Now, Nehemiah is pretty confrontational about all of this. You, you, you would have noticed that. Uh, you would have noticed the kind of things that he does here you know, he shuts the city gates. He, he threatens the merchants, um, the people who camp outside the gates, hoping that somebody will sneak out during the night and buy some of their wares. And uh, he explains why he is so worked up about this whole situation. It's because, if you look at verse 18, they're behaving in exactly the same way as their forefathers had acted. This is like a rerun. This is a deja vu kind of experience. If they had gone back 70 odd years before, when their fathers had been exiled, and the land had been desecrated, and everything had been destroyed, and Jerusalem had been laid waste, and everybody had been carted off away to Babylon, and the land had been left empty, Ask yourself the question, why did that happen? Why did all of that take place? Well, it was actually because of things like this that it took place. And so you can understand why Nehemiah is so worked up about all of this. He's seeing it all being played out again in another generation. He's saying that the lessons that just seemed to be so obvious, and people had lived through the consequences of all of that, and yet... Here they are again. And, and so that is why he is he's so worked up about all of this thing. And, and look at some of the words that he uses. He calls it a disaster. And he talks, about, he talks about wrath. Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. I mean, if you really wanted to understand to get right into the kind of visceral feel of what it felt like at that time. You go back and read the book of Lamentations. 
And, and, and the words that Jeremiah, who was an eyewitness of the destruction of Jerusalem, the way that he described it, he, he weeps for the daughters of Jerusalem. He, he describes the smoke and the rubble and the blackness and the bodies piled up and the weeping and the children and of them all being dragged off by the soldiers. You know, absolute destruction that took place. And this was God's wrath for their sin. Now, that's not a common concept that we discuss in this day and age, but it is a very important Bible point. What it means is that God's opposition to sin, to breaking His laws, to rebellion, to disobedience, God's opposition will not be compromised. It will always be the same. It's not the idea of anger in the sense that we know it, but it's the fact that He will always be fixed and He will never uh, waver or vary. I mean, sometimes we are not as opposed to things as we might be. You know, sometimes we give in to things that we shouldn't give in to. God's wrath is His consistent opposition and resistance to all that is wrong. And that has consequences. I mean, if you read the book of Romans chapter 2, you will be reminded that there is a day of wrath coming. And that all of us are, are, are hoarding up, if you like. We're, we're heaping up our sins for that day of wrath when God's wrath will be revealed, when it will be shown against the sins of humanity. And that will be done at an individual as well as at a collective level. And we need to understand, of course, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of the wrath of God. We can understand the, the death of Christ in a number of layers. It is a wonderful demonstration of the love of God for us. But it is also meeting the wrath of God on Christ. Almighty judgment fell that should have sunk a world to hell. And he deals with that and experiences the wrath of God, the punishment for our sin so that we can be free from that. That is the wonderful message of salvation that needs to be understood in terms of the wrath of God. And that is why he was so worked up. He saw that. Wrath will come because we've desecrated the Sabbath. We've broken the law of God. Now, the second point that he highlights here, uh, we meet from verse 23 down to 29. Um, and it's the issue of intermarriage. Now you might say, isn't it a good thing that uh, there's a multicultural and a multilingual population uh, in Jerusalem? It adds more life and color and variety as far as this, this new city is concerned, this newly inhabited city is concerned. Well, of course, in general terms, that's true. But, but one, of the, one of the main issues that we see highlighted by him here is that the women from the surrounding nations, some of which are mentioned here, that the men of Judah had married uh, had no belief in God. You know, they had no respect for the Bible. And they had their own culture. They had their own background. They had their own religion. They had their own values. And as their children were brought up, 
the children, number one, as it says here, half of them couldn't even speak the language of Judah, so they couldn't understand the, the word of God. And all that they were learning was from their mother's side of things. And that was being fed into their life. And of course, we know that if you uh, bring up a child in the way that he should go, you know, they won't depart from that. Now, that works on both sides. And that's what was happening to these children. And, and Nehemiah saw that. And the second point that he saw was that the, the hearts and the thoughts and the values of their husbands were also being influenced by them as well. And it was being replaced by, by other things. Now, it's not an over-exaggeration to say that. Uh, we're not gilding the lily, because what he does is this. He takes them back to the example of King Solomon. You, you would have seen that there. King Solomon, the greatest of all the kings, who represented the golden period as far as uh, Israel was concerned, where their borders were at their, their greatest extent, and the fame and the, the power of Israel were at, were at its peak. And, uh, you know, we, we all know about King Solomon, the wisest man. He was a wise, wise man. And he was loved by God. It says that here in the passage. And we know that he was um, the author of a number of the books in the Old Testament. In fact, he wrote Song of Songs, which is a book about marriage. Uh, he wrote the book of Proverbs with all these wise sayings. And quite a number of these wise sayings are to his son, giving his son instruction and guidance and wisdom as far as morality is concerned. And as far as who to get involved with was concerned. And he also writes, of course, the, books, the book of Ecclesiastes, which is all about what, what is meaningful in life and what is vanity and what's just like chasing the wind. And he, he wrote these things, and he was known for his wisdom. The Queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to, to experience for herself something about the wisdom of Solomon. You know, he was world famous for wisdom. Almost unbelievably, he falls. And at the end of his life, things slip. And this passage identifies the reason for it. And the reason for it is because his heart was taken away and influenced because of the unbelieving women that he married. And it says here that nevertheless, foreign women made even him, even him, to sin. Now, if it can happen even to him, a man like him, it can happen to any of us. And so, that's why he was so worked up about this issue as well. He could see how generation on generation, there was this insidious influence that was taking the affection of the people away from God uh, and, and it was being taken away to other things. And so he, 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 he sounds this warning, this warning note. And so there were hard decisions for them to make. And, and the, there, there will always be hard decisions for us to make. In fact, you know, 
It's part of the definition of being a, a disciple of the Lord Jesus. It's built into that, that there will be sacrifices to be made. I mean, that's why the Lord Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, you know, you will have to take up your cross. You will have to deny yourself to follow me. And so the denial and the sacrifice is all part of the decision-making of being a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, you can see how um, Nehemiah acts, and it seems a little bit of a shock to us to see this man doing what he does, you know, pulling out their hair and beating them and cursing them uh, because of all of this. And you say, whoa, you know, what, what, what is all, all of this about? We understand it's a big issue, but, um, you know, is this not a bit over the top? Well, there are some situations, of course, in life where it would be wrong for us just to let things go without a kind of reaction to them. But uh, anger is not to be a characteristic of the people uh, of God. Yes, there is righteous anger. We, we appreciate that. But, you know, just to make that point, I mean, Moses, on one occasion, acted a little bit like this. I mean, all he did, actually, was he... he he struck the rock and he spoke to the people and said, you're a bunch of rebels. You know, and he had some kind of uh, excuse, if you like, for doing that because they had persistently, relentlessly been just chipping away and harping away at him and it was almost breaking point and you could understand it. But despite all of that, he was not allowed to get into the promised land because he hadn't represented God properly by that outburst of anger. Now, if you were to go to the New Testament and uh, read the qualifications of uh, elders, overseers, and deacons, in and among the listing for all of that, you would, you would say, these men are not to be violent people. You know, they are to be gentle people. And if I could uh, maybe get you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24, um, where he says this, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, able to teach, sorry, patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they might come to their senses. In, in Nehemiah's defense, he is also a man of prayer. You will have noticed that there are a few prayers interspersed even in this chapter. It goes away back to the very first chapter, actually, when he hears the initial news that, uh, you know, Everything in Jerusalem just fallen apart, and he and he and he makes this quick prayer to the to the to the to the Lord before he speaks to the king, and 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 that's a characteristic of the man's life. He was the governor, he had administrative duties, but in the midst of his busy life and all his responsibilities, he was a man of prayer. Now you might look at his prayers and think, well, I'm not so sure about that. So, for instance, if you looked at verse 22. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your, of your steadfast love. 
You know, you might think on initial reading, he's saying, look, remember, look at all the things that I've done. I've done this and I've done that. And because I have done all of these things, please remember me with favor. And you think, well, that reminds me a little bit about, you know, that parable about the the Pharisee and the tax collector who went to the temple and the Pharisee prayed with himself and said, you know, I do this, I do that and all that. And the Lord said, no, that's not the way at all. I don't think we do look on it in this way. I mean, his faith, obviously, in God is something that is key. And I think that we should understand these words more in terms of the way that James in his letter describes faith. That faith without works, without action, is just something empty and something dead. You can't just say, I've got faith. If you've got faith, that faith will show itself. It has to show itself in how you live your life and what you do. If you don't see any results, then there's no faith there at all. And I think, I think it's in that sense that we understand Nehemiah. He does all of this, all of these things that he's been involved in, and he does all of it because of his faith in God. That's the motive. And of course, he's very good at getting other people involved in working as well. You see how it says that he stationed various people at their posts. You know, this is your post. This is the bit where you have to be. This is your responsibility here. And he's great at delegating and getting people involved, including, which is one of the great things about the life of the church, you know, that we should see where our post is, if you like. You know, they stood in the wall, for instance, at this bit, and that was their job. You know, it's good for us to to try and see where our post is and, and, and to be involved and to stand at that and to commit to that as far as the life of the church is concerned. So, how, how does it all end? How, how does all of this really end? You know, I think for Nehemiah, it, it all ends in frustration. It all ends in a feeling of just exasperation for him. He just sees it all falling apart again, and it gets to him. And he's like a middle-aged man. He's getting angry. He's getting narky about the whole thing. And he just can't seem to get a grip on it. And it's all running through his fingers, and it's, it's not coming together in the way that he thought it would come together. And it, and it almost seems as though they're going back to square one again. Despite the good laws, despite the Bible, Despite his best efforts, despite a good yet flawed man, despite all of the efforts, it's not enough. The project looks as though it's failing. And you see the whole point of this, because chronologically, although we look at Nehemiah and it seems to be in the middle of our Old Testament, it actually is right at the end of our Old Testament. He's a contemporary of Malachi, who writes the very last book of, the, of, of our Old Testament. This is right at the end of the Old Testament era. And, and despite everything that has happened, the prophets that have been there, you know, the goodness of God, you know, His graciousness in bringing them back from exile, you know, it just never seems as though they're moving on at all. And of course, the reason for that is because of this inherent sin of ours. This corruptness, this bias that is inbuilt 
as part and parcel of who we are as we are born in sin. And that's the point that is being made time and time and time again here in the Old Testament. And to, to quote the book of Galatians, the law, the Old Testament, is like a schoolmaster that will bring us to Christ. This schoolmaster is teaching us through a whole variety of different things that, you know, in your own heart, despite a good example, despite a leader, despite laws, despite this, you don't have it. It's not working. You're failing again. And that schoolmaster at the end of the day takes your hand and says, we're going to have to go to a different classroom today. I'm going to take you next door into this new classroom and I'm going to introduce you to somebody. The law is our schoolmaster that will bring us to Christ. You know, for 400 years in between the Old and New Testament era, silence. The Word of God is not heard at all until Christ comes. And the fulfillment of the the Scripture is the land, this land, Jerusalem, the land that lay in darkness, that sat in the shadow of death. On that land, a great light has shone. Christ. The teaching of Christ. The life and the death of Christ with the the message of the gospel that can transform hearts and can change people. Not making us perfect day by day, but will change us. And transform us in a way that all of this Old Testament stuff could never do. And so that, so that, rather than pointing us to a failed project, takes us to Christ. Causes us this morning to lift our eyes away from our failures and our disappointments and discouragements. That Christ might fill our eyes and that we might rest in Him. And in resting in him, we will find salvation for our souls. And may God bless his word. And shall we pray? Lord, how how grateful we are for having our attention pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great Savior of the world. Thank you that he came. Thank you that he presents himself and invites us to come to him to find rest for our souls. And Lord, we pray that all of our hearts and lives might be entranced with Christ and His greatness and that we might be driven to Him because we know that there is salvation in no one else, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. So Lord, we thank You for the greatness and for the glory of the Lord Jesus and help us to esteem everything else but but loss, but nothing, so that we might have Christ and be found in Him. So, Lord, we ask a blessing upon all our hearts today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.